All right, I invite you to take your Bible. We open the word this morning to Genesis chapter 26. Text I'm looking at today is uh, verses 1 through 33. I'm going to read that whole section. So it would help you greatly if you open your own Bible and follow along. It's a little bit of a lengthy section. Uh, But um, Apostle Paul instructing Timothy said, Devote yourself to the public reading of the Word of God. And uh, helps in the public reading if you're following along in your own Bible. So let's give our attention to God's Word being read together. 1 through 33, not quite the whole chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, or for he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with his wife, Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How could you then say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this that you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you, mu- for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring, spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us. We shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went 
to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast. They ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of that city is Beersheba to this day. This is the word of God. Uh, I invite you to pray with me. I need the Lord's help, and I am confident you do too. So let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your word. It is true. Not only is it true, it's, it's a unique word that it is living and active. And Father, because you have breathed it out, it uniquely works on us. It penetrates our beings, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it discerns us, exposes our intentions and thoughts before you. So, Father, we need you to do that work in us and among us now, that work that your word, that you intend for your word to do among us. And Father, as the proclaimer, I ask for a special measure of grace in this time to faithfully speak your truth. Open our minds and our hearts cause us to humbly submit before you for the sake of glory for your Son, Father, the Lord Jesus, and for our own sanctification. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you are familiar with the oft-quoted aphorism. It's credited to one Spanish philosopher, George Santayana, says this, Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it, right? You've heard that, I'm sure. And I think most agree with this observation. For example, I'm sure you've read the parallels between, just for example, the Roman Empire and its self-indulgence and, and decadence that ultimately led to its demise and the, and the, the way that uh, life in the West has been described, including this nation. A journalist in the 20th century, Sidney Harris, he was not as optimistic about our ability to learn from the past. He had his own twist on that adage. He said, history repeats itself, but in such a cunning disguise that we never detect the resemblance until the damage is done. Now, as Christians, we know the reason for this. We know the reason is sin. And what history is, is, is merely a record of what has happened before us. And that record includes the record of our collective failures. And we fool ourselves 
if we think we are somehow better and wiser than those who came before us. And the fact is, we live with this. Sin begets sin. But what is also true and what is exceedingly hopeful is that God's promises transcend generations because they are eternal. They cannot be thwarted by human weakness and failure. While the, the curse of sin is passed from generation to generation, so also is the very remedy for that curse, the remedy for our sin and rebellion, the promises of God. Now, why do I say all of this? This story in Genesis 26, it's, it's really part of the grand narrative of how God set apart a people unto himself. God did that in order to put his grace on display. Ultimately, he had determined to bless all the nations through that people. Now, if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, and most recently with Abraham, perhaps you thought, as I read this text, perhaps you thought, we've seen this before. And as I read through it, I, I mean, except for a few details, it, it seemed like you could maybe think this, that, that Moses took several of the Abraham stories, applied a, a search and replace in his you know, Microsoft Word or whatever ancient version that they had, right? Substituting Abraham and putting Isaac in place and then put them all together in one chapter. Well, just, I'm going to show these to you. This is all in chapter 26. Verse 1 of chapter 26 would certainly lead us in that direction, right? Now there was a famine in the land besides the, fam the former famine that was in the, in the days of Abraham. Now, here in our text, the Lord tells Isaac, you're going to remain in the land. Abraham instead, in response to that famine, escaped to Egypt. But here, Isaac, having settled in Gerar, he tries to pass his wife off as his sister because he feared he would be killed on account of her. Now, he was confronted ultimately by Abimelech, the local king. But if you recall, Abraham did the exact same thing twice. Now, at least Abraham had some measure of tiny bit of truth to his story that his wife is his sister because she was his half-sister. With Isaac, there isn't anything that's true. She's, I guess, as closest to be his cousin. So, the same thing here. Abraham did it twice. The once, once with Pharaoh back in Egypt, and then again with Abimelech, king of Gerar, in the land of the Philistines. Now, uh, we have similar stories, but we have similar names too. We have Abimelech with both Abraham and Isaac, and I just need to deal with this. Uh, I, they're not one and the same. Uh, that would be unlikely because the events are separated by more than 100 years. So, I would just for, for our understanding, I would just take it that Abimelech simply means uh, like a title. My father is king. But both Abraham and Isaac tell similar lies to the Philistine kings in their time. Now, you, you've got to wonder. I mean, the, certainly Abraham told the story, Isaac, because we have it here, right? It was a mistake for Abraham to lie. And Isaac thinks, you know what, let me try that thing again. Again, it... It, it's perplexing. Well, further, verse 20, Isaac has a dispute about wells with the locals here in Gerar. They're envious of his wealth. Back in Genesis 21, in his time, Abraham disputed over some of those very same wells. We have Abimelech and Phicol 
the commander of the Philistine army, both of them recognize that, that Isaac is blessed by the Lord. Uh, they tell him, we see plainly, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. And they enter into this sworn covenant with him. Back in 21, during Abraham's time, he enters a covenant with Abimelech and also fecal. Now, this is not the same fecal. It's likely also a title for something like general. They recognize with Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now in Beersheba, the Lord here affirmed to Isaac his promise and blessing. And Isaac built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. That's chapter 26, verse 25. We read that. Back in 21, also in Beersheba, and technically before the location was named, because we understand that Isaac had ultimately named it, be that as it may, Beersheba, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree, probably as a memorial to the Lord, and there he called upon the name of the Lord. Now, what to make of all of this? Again, like I say, it looks like a search and replace. And I just, I want to take a brief aside here. For those of you who like to study your Bibles and like to uh, look at what prior scholars have said to kind of assist with this, this is one of those occasions where left-leaning, and I would say for the most part, <laughs> unbelieving scholars, and in quotes, Christian scholars, have tried to convince the academic world of of how the Old Testament, in particular the Pentateuch, came to be. And I'm just going to refer to one person because when you encounter him in a commentary, I want you to set it aside, okay? I want you to say, that doesn't make sense. That's not really real. But again, these guys can seem rather convincing. And I learned all this stuff back in seminary. A guy named Julius Wellhausen, a 19th century theologian, again in quotes, uh, source critic, uh, came up with a hypothesis, which has been accepted by many scholars since then. It's the, called the uh, documentary hypothesis to suggest that, that the Pentateuch is indeed a, a compilation of four different sources all jammed together. Sources that came from a, a, a Yahwist source, that's the J, the Elohist source, that's the E, the priestly source, and the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic uh, historian source. And that somehow all of this was comprised somewhere in the 5th century BC. So if you encounter that, J-E-P-D, in your studies, please set it aside. Set it aside. The document that came to us is the authorship is not J-E-P-D, it's M. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses. Both the Apostle Paul and Jesus affirm that. So I just wanted to set that aside because if you're studying, you go, what is all of this talk? Please set that aside because it's the stories like this that get people thinking, well, how did this, it's just so much the same. Again, an aside. Now, back to the meaning of all this. Why all of this? Why these repeated stories? Why this like almost parallel existence between Isaac and Abraham? And I take it, as I was studying this, I take it that some things simply don't change. They don't change. And for, for the Israelites who are crossing the Jordan, who are hearing this, they're about to possess the land of Canaan, the, the, that very land that the Lord promised to give Abraham. And they're about to possess it. They're about to cross the Jordan and take it. And they're hearing this. They needed to understand how they came to be as a nation. But they could not view themselves as morally superior to their own forefathers. They could not. Rather, they could, and for us today, 
they could observe three realities. And this is where I'm going to go with the message this morning. Three realities that do not change. And the first one is this. It's the state of the world. Secondly, the reality that doesn't change is the state of man in general. And the third one, and this is the positive one, it's the promises of God. And that's where we hang our hope this morning. While the world and, re- and man stay the same, what also stays the same are the promises of God, and we can count on that. So first, let's talk about the state of the world. Now, simply uh, watching news, reading it perhaps, you can readily find out about places and circumstances in the world that, that threaten the well-being uh, and the safety of people, right? So what's in the news right now? Geopolitical unrest and recently Afghanistan or what's going on Russia and Ukraine, Islamic terrorism in, in some African nations, economic collapse in, in South, the South American continent, or just that age-old problem of famine, And in circumstances like these, people often live in fear of profound hardship and possibly even death. In Isaac's time, there was a famine. Now, famine is simply, I mean, we know what it means, right? Starvation, hunger. People don't have enough food to survive. And in Isaac's time, probably simply due to drought and the fact that they're looking for wells, digging wells, uh, it seems logical that that's the reason for it. It wasn't raining. So that lack of water, anybody knows who's, who's farmed. You don't have water. You, your crops will fail. The flocks and the herds will die. Now, presumably, Isaac had been living in the Negev. This is the southern part of, of the Canaanite territory, possibly Beersheba. So to escape this famine, he goes to Gerar, apparently a place that the Lord told him to go. Now, that's west of the direction, in the direction uh, towards the Mediterranean Sea and slightly to the north. And he was specifically told not to go to Egypt, unlike his father Abraham, who did. But the point here is the Lord tells him, Gerar is in the, the, the Canaanite territories, right? This is the very land. Sojourn in the land that I have promised to give your descendants. So stay there. This is your inheritance. Live there. Go to Gerar. Now, like I said, Abraham likewise experienced that famine. He took his refuge in Egypt. There has never been a time when at some place in the world, existence for people in some place is perilous. And people have had to take measures to protect themselves and their families. And that peril, we could, again, like from the news, that peril could be famine or some other natural disaster, flooding, volcanic activity, hurricanes, wildfires, earthquakes, heat wave, unexpected freeze, a blight that destroys crops, locusts, you name it. We can come up with a a myriad of, of ways that people's lives are affected. Now, the reason that Isaac had to deal with famine, the reason why there is hardship in the world in different places, ultimately goes back to the first parents, our first parents. You see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed the word of the Lord and they ate of that forbidden fruit, the Lord said, any tree of the garden you may enjoy, but leave this one alone, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet they took it. They took that fruit. Their eyes were opened and they brought upon themselves hardship. This is what was told to them back in Genesis. The Lord said, 
to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Brothers and sisters, that reality doesn't change. Now, we don't experience it necessarily at the same level. We work the land, right? We use the gifts of creation in order to sustain our lives. But because of the curse, creation fights us, right? It, it, it seems like it's going to battle against us. It resists our efforts to tame it. Now, we can be successful through physical, hard, hard physical work or hard mental work. But God told Adam, in pain you shall eat. There will be toil. And it's like creation. Even today, creation finds other ways to test us, right? And that, that it's not just the ground, but it's, it's everything. The ground is representative of creation in general. Why is, why is it hard in the world? Why is there peril? Even solutions to problems, they ultimately create other problems, right? For example, you put a levee or a reservoir in one place to, to protect from flooding, but then you risk another place downriver when the extreme flooding uh, happens, or what I should say is when uh, snow and rainfall levels exceed the models, and we experienced that several years ago, right? That reservoir up in South Dakota, they said, well, we got to do something. Let's flood Omaha, <laughs> right? It's a solution that creates another problem. I know it wasn't that callous, but that's how it felt to many around here, <laughs> right? But we see this, right? We developed, uh, humankind develops antibiotics for bacterial infections, but then those infections change and they somehow become resistant. We've seen this, viruses mutate and, and render vaccines less effective. And those very vaccines that are designed to protect from viruses sometimes, and this is rarely admittedly, they do great harm. And there are new viruses from nature and otherwise intelligent humans you know, mucking around in a lab and making stuff up. We don't even know. But the point is, we work and we work and we find that creation still comes in to attack us. It is the curse. And even where our intelligence Right? We, 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 we come up with creative ways, you guys in the, the military, intelligent weapons for our defense. Those weapons end up at the hand of our enemies, and all of a sudden, we're in the same place again. And, and, and seemingly benign technologies that have been developed to simplify our lives open us up to other evils never even considered. And just think about the internet. Now, I know this doesn't sound very hopeful. The point here is that in Isaac's time, in Abraham's time, and in our time, the world is a messed up place. So what do we do? Well, in one sense, we have to get used to it. But the point here is that we do not put our hope in things that are passing away. What we have to do, brothers and sisters, is look beyond the here and now and look to the hereafter. Look to Jesus Fix your eyes on him and long for his return when he makes all things new. That's the state of the world. Well, secondly is the state of man. The state of man. Now, most people at one time or another have reflected on past mistakes, right? Foolish and sinful decisions and thought. What if? 
What if I didn't think? What if I didn't say or do that thing? Now, we know that the thought experiment doesn't, doesn't change the past. There isn't any alternative universe where you can you know, live out the, the implications of a different decision. Well, I got to admit that the idea makes for very entertaining uh, movies, right? Back to the Future, that was a, an interesting uh, thought experiment put to film. But, you know, the, the very fact that people like these stories, at least I like them, is that, that at some level, we all have regrets. Now, I know some people say, no regrets, but all they're saying is, I'm not going to dwell on my mistakes. The point is, everyone has regrets, because everyone fails. Everyone fails. Even those that God has set apart for favor. Look at Isaac. He settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife. Clearly, uh, Rebecca was an attractive woman. He thought, Well, they'll take her, kill me, and I'm done for. Bottom line here is Isaac feared. And because Isaac feared, Isaac lied. Just like Abraham, his father, Isaac lied about his wife to protect his own life. Now, that seems horrible to us. And just like his father, Abraham, he didn't consider the implications of his deceit. Now, I, as I think about this, would not be better to, to die defending his wife's honor than to give her up to a godless stranger? Well, of course, before anything could happen to Rebekah, the lie is exposed. Verse 8 Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, this word laughing, a little footnote there, probably in your Bible, it's likely a euphemism for some kind of physical intimacy between them. Now, whatever it is, what Abimelech sees is this looks like not brother and sister. This looks like husband and wife. It's clear to him. And so he rebukes Isaac. The godless king rebukes Isaac for his sin. He says, how could you say she is my sister? And Isaac admits his fear. I thought, lest I die. And Abimelech gets it. He gets the implications of, of, of this lie not being exposed. One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. Isaac's lie was exposed, I think, by the grace of God through a godless king. Now, not only do we see in our text Isaac's own sin, but we also see the sins of the Philistines against him, 19 through 22. Look down in your Bibles there, and, and we already went over this, but Isaac's servants dig these wells, Essek and Sitna, but the herdsmen of Gerar claimed them as their own. So they basically stole his source of life. He digs another well, and the dispute uh, wasn't there. He calls it Rehoboth, for the now the Lord has made room for us. Isaac's sin, the sin of the Philistines. What's the conclusion? We all know this. People sin. This is the state of man. People sin. They sin against the Lord. They sin against one another. Again, it's the state of humanity. Sin begets sin. Why? Well, Paul gives us explanation by drawing from other parts of Scripture. Romans 3 the Apostle Paul writes, none is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Down to 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the indictment on humanity. That's the state of mankind. Now, as the Israelites are hearing this story, again, about to cross into the land of Jordan, they needed to understand that even though they were going to possess the land that the Lord had promised them, that didn't mean that they would, they, uh, they would not experience hardship at times. It didn't mean that. There might be natural disasters, crop failures, and hostile nations threatening their existence. And not only that, they needed to know that they were not guiltless before the Lord. The Lord did not Choose them because they were more righteous. And if you're a believer in Jesus today, the Lord did not choose you to know him because you were more righteous than the guy down the street. We have to get that. He chose Israel to be objects of his mercy. And if you're a believer in Jesus today, he chose you to be an object of his mercy. It is all of his goodness. You and I are unworthy before the Lord. And so we've got to take that to heart. In this sin-stained world, we both, we both contribute to the sin as well as suffer the consequences of sin. And the Bible tells us that that sin has immediate but also eternal consequences. The wages, what you earn for sin is death, Romans 6, 23. So what's the remedy? Been bad news to this point. What's the remedy? Well, that's my third heading. Cling to the promises of God. Now, when you buy milk, I think you know this, you can only keep it so long in the fridge before it goes sour. When you get that re reward on your app for Chick-fil-A, you can only... Get that free sandwich in the week that it's given, right? If you don't use your air miles and hotel rewards within the prescribed time, they go away. When my wife's, uh, when my wife, when my brother's wife died some years ago, he asked me to do the funeral. So I booked very short notice, booked some very expensive flights to fly to Toronto. When I got to the airport, they wouldn't let me board the plane because my passport had expired. So I had to drive late into the night, and I made it there for the service the next day. But the airline, this was the good news, they told me, well, I could use the credit for another flight, but then the pandemic, <laughs> $900 of flight credits expired. Another example, my mother-in-law, she paid for a, a cruise for my wife and her sister and her aunt. Then the pandemic. And to this date, they haven't been able to book another cruise. And it's going to expire. Many good things in this world seem to be so very temporary. They are. 
But you know, something that will never expire, something that will never fade, something that will never, ever lose its value are the promises that God makes. We can live by that. God promised Abraham to make him to a great nation. He promised to bless him and make his offspring like the stars of the sky. He promised to give them a land of their own. And then that blessing was passed on to Isaac. We read back in chapter 25, verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Bir Laharoi. Well, here in chapter 26, now the Lord appeared to Isaac and reaffirmed that promise. Verses three and four, he said to Isaac, I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring these lands. So that very promise made to Abraham did not expire. It was passed to Isaac. Again, the land, many offspring, a nation, But the most important part of that promise, that's the second part of verse four. And that's what extends God's promise to all, where he says to Isaac, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what's the meaning of that? We revisited visited this before in discussing Abraham, but I will remind you what that means. In Galatians, the apostle Paul explains it. He says this, Galatians 3, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So that applied to Isaac too. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, the promise made to Abraham is something that he could not fully fathom, but the seed promised to the woman in the garden Eve, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. That seed that they'd been waiting for for generation after generation, beyond Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, beyond their offspring, beyond the nation of Israel, to finally one day, when in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. God sent forth his son, the singular offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations would be blessed. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as we quoted that verse together in in our scripture reading, if you have believed, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Son of God, if you have trusted that he went to the cross dying for your sins in your place, if you have trusted that that was full payment for your record of debt against Almighty God, if you have trusted that the grave could not hold him, if you've believed that he was raised on the third day, if you put your full faith and trust in him, you are blessed. You are Abraham's offspring by faith. So, so what of these promises? Well, what we can claim today, brothers and sisters, is the certainty of salvation 
for all people. This is what it says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some promises, these things that we can find hope in today. That as we look across the world and we see the world is a messed up place and we look at our own lives and see, boy, the sin is still here. I, and maybe it's being slowly eradicated, but it's still there. Where's the hope? It's in these promises. First of all, the certainty of salvation for all people. In Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you've come here this morning, if you're watching on the live stream, if you want to be saved from the consequence of your sin, the eternal punishment that would be rightly yours because you have offended a holy God, in eternal hell, put your full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who died in your place and rose again. Trust him today, I urge you. There's the certainty of salvation for all who believe. And with that is the promise of forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. The Apostle John writes in his letter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We get it. We see our shortcomings. We see our failures. The truth is not in us. And here's the hope. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Do you hear that word just? He is just. He's righteous. He does not surrender any of his righteous judgment. God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. He's just because he poured out his full wrath on his son. It is paid. He is not going to pour his wrath out on you if you have trusted in his son. It is the the assurance of a full pardon before God. And further, as a child of God, you have access to God. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. I'm grateful for that. When I'm fearful, when I'm tempted, when I stumble, when I fall. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with that weakness. He has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And so what can we do? The writer says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Come boldly into the presence of God in prayer, knowing, knowing that you will find mercy and grace to help in your time of need. What else can we count on? We can count on overcoming temptation. Paul says this to the Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Whatever you're tempted with, somebody else has been tempted with that. You're not unique. You're not alone in this. But here's the good news. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, this isn't permission, brothers and sisters, to flirt with sin and go up to the edge and think, well, I can can handle this. The, The way of escape 
is the very word of God that we hear spoken to each other in fellowship, that we hear proclaimed when we gather with God's people, that we, we see in the word when we read it for ourselves. Our way of escape is filling up with the truth of God, displacing the, the, the worldly desires, the desires of the flesh. But God is faithful. He gives the means that you may be able to endure it. Rescue from temptation. Two more parts of God's promises. The assurance of continued grace. Being saved, being welcomed in the family of God isn't a one-time deal. Yes, you're marked as a child of God, but God's action in your life does not stop there. It continues. Hear this. The Apostle Paul says, Philippians, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will bring it to completion. He's continuing to work in you. And not only that, we have the promise of an eternal home with Jesus. Not just a mere rescue from condemnation and left on our own. No. What we get is glorious fellowship with the Lord Jesus for eternity. Jesus said to his disciples, and this promises for us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Brothers and sisters, the answer for us in a messed up world, the answer for us in, in seeing the, 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 the sin in our lives that remains and the sins of those around us, the answer for that is the promises of God. Now, in a sense, history does repeat itself. The sinful state of the world and man have brought this curse. So how do we live in such a way as to see through the disguise and, and personally avoid the damage? There is hope. History need not repeat itself. What we do, brothers and sisters, is cling to the promises of God. We must live humbly in the world. We must acknowledge that the world is crumbling around us. There are bad things happening. Good things, even that we have, are going to be temporary. They will expire. We have to recognize our own weaknesses and cling to God's promises. We're no better than our parents, but we trust Christ. We trust his promise, and he will hold us faithful for that day. So let's do that. Hold on to the promises of God because you are blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. Grateful that you have blessed us abundantly. You have poured out the riches of your grace upon us. You have chosen by your grace and mercy to rescue us from the consequences of our own evil. You have opened our eyes to see your son, our savior, Jesus, crucified for our sin and raised for new life. Father, we know and you know Living in this world is tough and we're so easily tripped up. But God, teach us, increasingly teach us to cling to your promises. And in the face of, of temptation, the face of grief, in the face of, of all kinds of struggle, God, remind us the sure thing, the thing that will never go away is what you have promised. So keep us faithful, we pray. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.